0: So this is John 12 and the events of John are reaching a climax. With the raising of Lazarus from the dead in chapter 11, it seems like Jesus' popularity is back and it's at an all time high. But just as his popularity has been growing, so has the opposition been growing against him. And now it comes to this dramatic feast of Passover. And this time, Jesus doesn't sneak in, he enters dramatically. And so, we need help understanding the significance of this. So let's let's start off by praying that the Holy Spirit would open our eyes to see who Jesus truly is. Pray with me. Heavenly Father, please show us the glory of Christ. We are often hard of hearing and slow to apply when it comes to your word. So, with Asaph from Psalm 73, I pray that you would be continually with us. Hold our right hand as we read your word, guide us with your counsel, and show every believer in here that one day you will receive us to glory. And I pray that we could say with Asaph, There is nothing on earth that I desire besides you. And we pray this in Jesus' name, amen. It was February 7th, 1964, and John Lennon, George Harrison, Paul McCartney, and Ringo Starr were on an airplane headed to New York City. You may have heard of their band, The Beatles. Well, it was exploding in popularity, especially in Europe. They called it Beatlemania. It was so popular in Europe, but now they're crossing the Atlantic, coming to New York City, and they're kind of unsure of what they're going to find when they come to the U.S. But sure enough, they come out of the plane and are greeted by 3,000 screaming fans. And this was just the beginning. One article described their popularity like this. The band couldn't travel without being mobbed by hordes of breathless music lovers. During a gathering in Washington, an overzealous girl snuck up behind Ringo Starr and cut off a lock of his hair to save it as a souvenir and it was so bad that their management team had to come up with decoys. They'd have these four people dressed up in wigs go one way so that the Beatles could actually make it to the stage. Some fans came to blows as they were jockeying for a better position and police were forced to contend with teenagers rushing their barricades to get a chance at touching their idols, the Beatles. And honestly, as I read this article, it really made me question how rational and sane these hordes of fans were. But in John 12, we see a similar pandemonium when Jesus comes to town. But this one, I think it makes a lot more sense. The word has just gotten out that Jesus raised Lazarus from the dead. And I mean, think about it. The people must have been giddy with excitement, bursting with energy as they think about what does this mean for me personally, for our military, for our society? Think about what this could mean. And so Jesus comes to Jerusalem and it's often titled the triumphal entry. But the shocking difference between Jesus and the Beatles and all other triumphal entries is that for Jesus, this is really a triumphal funeral procession. Jesus came to die. And our main idea today is that the great king comes to die and eternal life is found in following him. And we need to hear this passage today because, I mean, if you're like me, we really like our life where we call all the shots. We like things that are easy and painless, but Jesus comes and disrupts this by first his example. He comes and comes not to receive all of the praise of men, but comes to lay down His life, and so He disrupts our easy, cozy life, and then He disrupts it again, because when He comes, He challenges us to follow Him, no matter the cost. This is a countercultural truth, and so it's one we really, really need to hear today. But the good news I want you to hear is that the self-denying life of following Jesus is actually the life of the deepest rewards and joy. And we'll come to find out as well that the easy life of calling all the shots for yourself is actually the life that leads to destruction. So again, our main idea today is the great king comes to die and eternal life is found in following him. And so we've got two main points today that you can see up there. They're going to kind of build on top of each other to lead us to this main idea. So first we have the hype at his coming in verses 9 through 19. And then we have the purpose of his coming in 20 through 26. So first let's look at the hype at his coming. So just as Lois read, Jesus is in Bethany and the crowds are flocking to see Jesus, but also to see Lazarus, that he has just been raised from the dead and people want to see Lazarus. And we see also in that section the stubborn disbelief of the religious leaders. They, instead of believing, become more and more wicked. They're kind of like uh, any stereotypical bad guy, (laughs) like their solution is just to kill the next person. So now they are plotting not just one murder of Jesus, but also to murder Lazarus as well. But look down at verse 12 to see what Jesus does. In verse 12, the next day, the large crowd that had come to the feast heard that Jesus was coming to Jerusalem. So they took branches of palm trees and went out to meet him crying out, Hosanna, Blessed is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. So we'll stop there. Many think this crowd in Jerusalem could have been as many as two million people. So a big portion of this, they come out to meet Jesus. And Jesus is making this short journey, it's about two miles from Bethany to Jerusalem. And they come out to meet him. And I want to clarify a few things that we just read. So, first, the palm branches. They would have, sorry about this, my mic is giving me some problems this morning. The palm branches, they would have been everywhere, but they're also a nationalistic symbol. So it almost would have been like waving a national flag, their, their nation's flag. And then they cry out this statement, from, which is from Psalm 118, which is this psalm. It's filled with joy and anticipation at the coming of the Messiah and even the word hosanna i don't know we i don't know if you are familiar with that word it means give salvation now so imagine you're part of this crowd the atmosphere is electric you i mean think about it. you and your family and your people you've been oppressed you've been taxed you've been occupied by the romans and now it's fast it's Passover, this feast where, if you remember, your ancestors were slaves in Egypt, but they were freed by mighty signs. That's what you're remembering at Passover. And now Jesus, who just raised the dead, is coming to you. And so you go out with the crowds and you're crying out with them, give salvation now. Great and wonderful is he who comes in the name of the Lord, even the King of Israel. And you're looking up, I can just imagine, you'd be looking up to see him coming on this war horse or this chariot. But then down through the crowds, you see him. And he is humble and gentle, riding on a donkey, a young donkey. And As I read this and looked up, what does it even look like to ride a young donkey? What do young donkeys look like? I thought it was so funny because young donkeys are like the same size as their riders. They're like the least impressive thing ever. And Jesus chose this animal for his triumphal entry. It would have been like in our day if Jesus chose a moped for his grand parade to ride into town. It's so funny. Now, I should say, the impressive entrance that you're expecting of Jesus riding a war horse, that is coming. At the second coming, Jesus will come riding on a war horse with the clouds of heaven, with the heavenly armies behind him. It's coming. But here, he intentionally chooses to ride a young donkey into town, and it's intentional. Every single detail of his coming that we read here was intentional. The donkey, the time of Passover, even the year itself, it was all intentionally chosen to fulfill prophecy, to point to who he really is. But let's focus specifically on the donkey. He chose to ride it to fulfill prophecy. I think we've got it on the screen here. Zechariah 9.9 says, Rejoice greatly, O daughter of Zion. Shout aloud, O daughter of Jerusalem. Behold, your king is coming to you. Righteous and having salvation is he. Humble and mounted on a donkey. On a colt, the foal of a donkey. Jesus is that prophesied king coming to Jerusalem with salvation. And he's unlike all other kings that you would know because he is humble. And also, I think Jesus chose this animal to ride into town because no one rides a donkey into battle. (laughs) It's a bad idea. Jesus is showing the peace that he is bringing. It's not through militaristic war. It's through giving his life to save his people. And so look down at verse 16. His disciples did not understand these things at first, but when Jesus was glorified, then they remembered that these things had been written about him and had been done to him. It wasn't until Jesus' death and resurrection that the disciples actually understood that Jesus was fulfilling prophecy. And this is the irony of so much of John. John is, the book of John is filled with this these ironic statements like this one, because These comments about save us, King of Israel, all of the actions of the crowds, it's ironic because they take on a whole nother lens when you look back at it through the lens of the cross. We know what's coming and when you look back at it, it takes on this deeper meaning. What they were saying, King of Israel, save us now. This is the most appropriate thing they could have ever been saying. And yet they were saying it for all the wrong reasons, thinking only in terms of military and the Romans. This is one of those brief moments where the crowd's response matched the monumental nature of what was happening in the moment. But Jesus was coming not to save them from the Romans, but to bring salvation for the world. This was the salvation that was promised since the Garden of Eden, and it was coming not through coming and taking the lives of the Romans, but through the Romans taking his life so that he might give eternal life to all who trust in him. And so I just I want to take a brief moment to pause and give you two quick applications here. First, praise Jesus for who he truly is, not who you want him to be. He doesn't fit into the mold you want to put him in, so don't try. He'd be much less glorious if he did. Praise him for who he truly is. And I think beware of subtle presuppositions when you come to the Bible about who Jesus is. We all come with baggage and previous thinking about who we think Jesus is. Beware of it. Come when you come to the Bible, come ready to submit your understanding, your view of Jesus beneath the scriptures. And second, I would just say on a practical note, you need to reread your Bibles. This scene is supposed to be understood in light of the cross, looking back. And so you need to reread the book of John many times to understand how each part is understood in light of the whole. I would just say maybe even one helpful practice for you. I found it's very helpful when you read a book, instead of just jumping onto the next one, maybe read it again. Maybe read it three times in a row and you'll start to pick up themes that you would miss on a single reading through. Reread scripture and never come to your Bibles and say, I already read that, I'm good. Don't underestimate the value of rereading your Bible. And to wrap up this section, let's just look at the last few verses. And I should clarify, it was a little confusing for me at first when I read it, but it clarifies that if you understand there's two crowds here. So there's the crowd from Jerusalem coming out to meet Jesus, and then there's the crowd from Bethany, which is going up, to meet Jesus. The crowd from Bethany is the one who's seen Lazarus raised from the dead. So look down at verse 17. The crowd, and here he's talking about this crowd from Bethany, the crowd that had been with him when he had called Lazarus out of the tomb and raised him from the dead continue to bear witness. The reason why the crowd, and just to clarify, now we're talking about the crowd in Jerusalem, The reason why the crowd went to meet him was they heard he had done this sign. So the Pharisees said to one another, you see that you're gaining nothing. Look, the world has gone after him. So these two large crowds, they come together and they merge and they call out Jesus' praises and the Pharisees are getting exasperated. They're saying the world has gone after him. And John uses the term world all the time. Just to clarify, they're not saying every single person in the world has gone after Jesus. They're saying all groups of people have gone after Jesus. It's the world without distinction, not the world without exception. But the point being, all kinds of people are going after Jesus now. And this is all pointing to the evidence of the hype, the excitement, and Jesus coming to town. But now, we turn to the surprising purpose of Jesus' coming in verses 20 through 26. So please look down with me at verse 20. Now, among those who went up to worship at the feast were some Greeks. So these came to Philip, who was from Bethsaida in Galilee, and and asked him, "'Sir, we wish to see Jesus.' Philip went and told Andrew, Andrew and Philip went and told Jesus. So these Greeks were likely God-fearing Gentiles who wanted to see Jesus. And their coming shows that everything the Pharisees were saying is true. The world really has gone after Jesus. Jews and Gentiles, they're all pursuing Jesus now. And as so often happens... Jesus is asked a question, and he seemingly just ignores it. He doesn't even address it. Sometimes this is what teachers do. I'm sorry if I have ever been teaching, and you've asked me a question, and it seemed like I essentially said, great question. Now back to what I was saying. I am sorry. I know that happens. But I think it's because teachers, a lot of times, They have a big picture in mind, a main point they want to communicate, and they're wary of questions that might distract from that big point. And this is what's happening here. The disciples have their eye on the specific need, these specific Gentiles. Jesus is looking at the big picture. He sees he's come to Jerusalem now. The world has gone after him, and he sees what this means. It's evidence that the end has come. This is as far as the Father has intended for his reputation to grow at this moment. And so look down at verse 23 to see how Jesus responds about what this means, about the significance of this situation. Jesus answered them, The hour has come for the Son of Man to be glorified. Now, this is an amazing statement. I want to make sure we caught it here. If you've been with us for the book of John, you know that when Jesus talks about my hour, he's talking about the hour of his death. And you know when he talks about Son of Man, this is a title from Daniel chapter 9 that he uses to refer to himself. So, catch this. He is saying, the time of my death has come. It's time for me to be glorified. Jesus' hour of death is his hour of glorification. You would think the hour of his glorification was when he comes into town and everybody's praising him, but no, Jesus says the time for him to be glorified is when he dies and rises again. Now think about it, why? Why would it be that Jesus' time of death is his time to be glorified? He gives the answer. Look down at verse 24. Truly, truly, I say to you, unless a grain of wheat falls into the earth and dies, it remains alone. But if it dies, it bears much fruit. Jesus uses this analogy of wheat being buried in the earth as a picture of his own burial, his death, and pointing to the rich harvest that's going to come as a result of his death. He's pointing to the fact that So many throughout history, throughout the world, have been saved through his death on behalf of sinners. This is the rich harvest he's pointing to, and it comes only through his death. Now, the fact that this statement comes right on the heels of the triumphal entry, I think it's so interesting. They're put side by side, and I want you to see what it shows us about Jesus. He's unlike anyone you've ever known. I mean, think about this. The crowds are coming to him, singing his praises, basically begging him to become king for them. Think about it. What would you have done in that situation? I can tell you what the Beatles did. Back to our opening analogy. They come and hordes of fans flock to them. This is what they do, they interview on TV, they play in impressive concerts, they enjoy all the luxuries and comforts that their situation brings them. Even in one interview, they came and they said, we've got an important announcement, buy more Beatles records. That's their message, their goal. Make us more popular, give us more money, make our fame spread, And then there's Jesus. Look at Jesus. He came to do the will of the Father. He came to save sinners, no matter the personal cost. He looked past earthly kingdoms, earthly comforts, and he looked to the desperate state of the world. As Philippians 2 says, he didn't look only to his own interest, but to the interest of others, even to the point of death on a cross. This is what Jesus came to do. That man is worth following, which is exactly what he asks us to do. He turns from talking to his own death now to talking to his disciples about what this means for them. Look down at verse 25. Whoever loves his life loses it. And whoever hates his life in this world will keep it for eternal life. If anyone serves me, he must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. Jesus uses this strong language to get his point across about what it means to follow him. It's a jarring statement because that's just about the only thing that could break through to us. He calls his followers to hate their life." Now let me be clear, this language of loving versus hating, this is comparative language. It's drawing comparison. It's asking, what will you love more? What will you love supremely? It's not about just hating life. My brother said about this passage, Jesus isn't calling us to be desireless but to have deeper desires. Because think about it, anytime you love something supremely, everything else can oftentimes look like hate. You can see this type of language in Genesis 29 with the story of Jacob and Rachel and Leah. You can look it up and see they're using the same type of language. But I want to demonstrate it with another story that maybe you've heard. There was once a man... Who is walking through a field and he stumbles onto this box, huge crate in the ground, and on the top it says, Finders Keepers. So he's curious and he opens it up and finds it's filled with gold coins. And he's like, This is probably a prank, but he's seen this done on TV, so he grabs one of the coins, bites it, sure enough, it's real gold filled with real gold and he is ecstatic and so what he does is he runs to whoever owns the property so he's covered up the he's covered up the treasure he runs to whoever owns the property and with joy he says I'll sell you everything I have just let me buy your property and the man's like confused he's thinking man this guy must hate whatever possessions he has they must be garbage but then he looks no they're good and so he agrees I'll sell you the property you might know this story it's based off of the hidden treasure in matthew 13 and it shows how the man in the story loved the treasure so much more than everything else that it looked to the outsider like he hated his old possessions it's talking about how greatly you love what you found and so it is with those who come to christ they used to love their sin. Or maybe they love something innocent, but they loved it so much they were willing to sin to get it, or they sin when they don't get it. But when that person comes to Christ, their priorities are totally transformed. The transformation is so great that look at what Jesus says next. He says, If you serve me, you must follow me. And where I am, there will my servant be also. Well, think about it. Where has he said he is going? He is going to die. And he's saying, my servant will be there with me. So Christians are called to have their priorities so transformed by Christ that they're now willing to go with him to death, to be willing to die with Jesus. And many throughout history have died for Jesus. Many even today die for Jesus But let's think about for us here in the United States. It might not look like dying for Jesus, but we are still called to have that priority transformation, so much that we're willing to die to ourselves, die to our sinful desires, die to the things we love more than Jesus. And if you're in the room here, and Jesus is not your Lord and Savior. I just want to take a moment to talk directly to you. Jesus is unlike anyone you have ever known. He came to die to offer you salvation and We have said this many times here on a Sunday morning, that you receive this salvation through repentance and faith in Christ. You can see that in John 3.16 and many other passages. This is incredible news. But our passage today clarifies what it means to repent and put your faith in Jesus. Do you love sin? Sexual immorality, envy, boasting, gossip, whatever it is, Or do you love something so much that you say, it's off limits for Jesus? Maybe it's something ordinary, like a hobby. But when Jesus calls you, he calls you to love him above all else. He will not be second place in your life. Either you will have Jesus as Lord, or you will not have him at all. And you will not have the salvation he offers you. This is what true genuine faith looks like and I would just encourage you you might think okay that's what it means to follow Jesus why on earth would I do that why would I give up everything to follow him why would I let him call all the shots because this my friend is the path to true and eternal life everyone wants to live But it's ironic because many spend their lives like a child with a hand in a candy jar, trying to get the candy out, but it's stuck in the jar because they won't let go. They need to see, you need to see, that true life is found in letting go, in surrendering to Christ, looking to him to give you eternal life. And so I would challenge you, do not pass up eternal life For some hobby, for some sin, entertainment, whatever it is, it's not worth it. And I could even say for myself, I found far greater joy in Christ than anything this world can give. Following him is worth it because he knows what I need better than I know myself. And he never asks us, he never asks me or you to do anything he is unwilling to do himself. And so, that's what true repentance and faith looks like. It looks like this radical surrender to Jesus. It looks like following him no matter the cost, and it looks like trusting him, believing him that he is everything he said he is, and that he's right when he says it's worth it to follow him so if you want to know more about that please come talk to me come talk to any of the pastors here I'll be in the back at the end Pastor Mike will be up front come talk to us we'd love to talk with you about what that might look like in your life and I hope as I apply this next section to believers it clarifies even more of what this life could look like so for my brothers and sisters in here I have personally been convicted looking at this passage As I've asked myself, do I love my life on this earth too much? And as I list these categories I'm about to, I want you to ask yourself the same question. Now, there are good and wise reasons why you might not sacrifice and give something up, but the reason must never be, I just don't love Jesus that much. Comments like, I could never do that, That's just too much to ask. It shows more about your heart than about what a wise decision might be. And so, a few categories. Here's the application. Does your love for Jesus shape your view of your reputation? Jesus could have been hailed as a king the rest of his life, but he chose the path that led to him being mocked and treated as the imposter king. And for you and I, are we willing for that to happen to us, to follow Jesus, even if it means the same thing for us? Do you love your reputation so much that it keeps you from following Jesus, to share the gospel with your neighbors, to have a hard conversation with a Christian who's wandering from the faith, or maybe even just silently serving without drawing attention to yourself? Does your love for Christ shape your view of your reputation? Second, does your love for Jesus shape your view of earthly possessions? This year, I moved into a wonderful home. It's got a garage, a yard, appliances that, for the most part, all work. Uh, I love my house, and that's okay. That's okay. I'm thankful for my house. But it becomes a bad thing when I start neglecting my family to take care of this precious yard that I have. It becomes a bad thing when I grip these possessions so tightly that I'm unwilling to do anything that might compromise them. And so, do you love your possessions and say, that's off limits for you, Jesus, that's mine. That's not for the needs of the church, that's mine intentionally stretch yourself in these areas to show your love for Jesus. Maybe it looks like loaning your car or your tools or your treasured golf clubs to your friend who might need them. Maybe it looks like inviting somebody to your home. Even though you know they might mess it up or break something, practically find ways to show your own heart and to show Jesus you love him So much more than these possessions. And third, let your love for Jesus shape your view, your desires, for your kids and your grandkids. The call to prioritize Jesus above all else extends not just to you, but to your kids and your grandkids. So often we communicate with our prayers, with our conversations, our gifts, our actions, that our deepest desire for our kids or our grandkids is their safety, their comfort, their financial success. Obviously, I'm saying those are all good things, important. But Jesus calls them not to love their life and lose it but to love him and find eternal life and joy. And so go and ask your kids, your grandkids, what do you think I want most for you? What do you think my deepest desire is for you in this life? And then go out and communicate with your actions, your prayers, your whole life, that what you see as the best thing in the world for them, the best thing you could wish for them is that they follow Jesus no matter what, even if it's dangerous, even if it's financially challenging, even if it takes them far away from you. Communicate to them that following Jesus is best and loving him above all that this world can give. Let your love for Jesus shape your goals, your desires for your kids and your grandkids. And I want to just close with encouraging you all. I've seen so many do this today, and I know some of you even now might be thinking, I do need to practically show Jesus that I love him above all else, and that I don't love this life and lose it. I don't prioritize this life above all these things. Know that not a single sacrifice is wasted Hebrews 6.10 says, God is not so unjust as to overlook your work and the love you have shown in his name. And I have seen you love and work in the name of Christ. I've seen retired folks who are working harder than ever now because to the very end, they want to follow Christ and love his church. I've seen young people serving their siblings, which is hard to do, serving their church because they love Jesus, members dying to their fears and their love of a good reputation by telling their friends, their neighbors about Jesus. Dearly loved brothers and sisters, let me tell you that no hour spent, no dollar given, no dinner invite, no earnest prayer, nothing you've given in the name of Christ is ever wasted. And here, here is why. My favorite part of this passage. Look down again at verse 26. Jesus says, If anyone serves me, the Father will honor him. I know that not all of you have good relationships with your parents. I have a great relationship with my dad, and so I hope my example could show how this passage should resonate with us. I love and respect my dad. And all the time, I end a call with him, and he says, You're a good son, Andrew. And that matters to me. You you can call me whatever you want. My dad says that I'm a good son. And if you're a follower of Christ, and you serve him, your heavenly Father will honor you in the same way. He'll honor you with an unshakable, eternal hope. He will honor you with an imperishable inheritance kept safe for us in heaven. He will honor us by adopting us as His children and bestowing on us all His love and affection. So much so that those who are united with Christ by faith, they can know the Father will speak to them as he speaks to his son, Jesus, by saying, this is my beloved son or daughter with whom I am well pleased. Or as Matthew 26 says, the Father will say, well done, good and faithful servant. This world can call us whatever they want. And you may have to give up comforts or wealth or popularity, but it's worth every bit of it when the Father honors you. It's worth it for you, it's worth it for your kids, your grandkids, for anyone who comes to Christ. So again, from John 12, as we look back, remember the great King, he came to die. And remember that true and eternal life where your Father smiles upon you and honors you. It's found in following Jesus, no matter the cost. Let's pray. Heavenly Father, we confess that some of what Jesus says to us in this passage is hard for us, because we often do love our money, our reputation, our control. Please remind us of the example of Christ, who came not to be served, but to serve and to give his life as a ransom for many. Please strengthen us with your spirit and remind us of the glorious hope and honor that awaits us through the perfect life, death, and resurrection of Christ. Show us that every sacrifice in his name is worth it. And we pray all of this in the precious name of Christ, for his glory. Amen.